Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. So we are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for a special guest episode today. This will be the second episode in a series of undetermined length, where we compare and contrast certain aspects of Greece with that of Rome. The previous iteration featured a conversation with classicist and podcaster, Avon McMaster, to discuss Roman sexuality. Today we bring on another classicist, fellow podcaster and all-around friend of the show, Peter Greenfield, to discuss a few aspects in regards to the role of women in the religious sphere of Rome. That is because in addition to being co-host of the Partial Historians podcast, Peter's doctoral dissertation was on the Vestal Virgins, a collective of six priestesses whose temples was located at the edge of the Roman Forum, and her research interests include the intersection between religion and politics in Rome and the role of women in the late Republic and Augustan period. So she is the perfect person to bring onto the show for this topic. And unsurprisingly, we had an excellent, informative, and absolutely hilarious conversation. For those who are fans of our podcast, and you all should be, the hilarious conversation part should come to no surprise. Well, today I'm joined with Peta Greenfield from The Partial Historians. Peta, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So in the last several episodes, we've talked quite a bit about Greek religion and women's roles in both the private and the public aspect of religion. So I brought Peta on today, since she's an expert in ancient Rome, to talk about the roles that women played in various aspects in religion in ancient Rome. Can you tell us about the general aspects that women played in religion in ancient Rome, uh, various festivals, the roles that they played in the home, various aspects, and then we'll compare and contrast that with ancient Greeks? Yeah, definitely. So Roman women have a really broad role in religion, and this is something that has been increasingly uh, brought out in recent scholarship because we went through this sort of whole phase in 20th century scholarship where women's roles were kind of minimized and people read the evidence as if women weren't able to participate in really particular ways in Roman religious festivals. So there was a, an idea that went around for quite some time that women weren't able to hold the sacrificial knives to do the sacrifices themselves and thus weren't part of a whole bunch of things to do with religious process in ancient Rome. But what we're finding now is that's just not the case. We've got some pretty clear evidence that women carrying implements, depending on their particular role and affiliation to different cults. And there are also a whole bunch of sort of cultic rituals, which are specific to women alone. Um, so you have things like the Bonadea rituals, where elite women are getting together uh, in a household in order to celebrate things and men are deliberately excluded. But also a whole bunch of gods and goddesses that women can participate in the festivals of publicly, um, but also privately. So we have like Rome is divided up into these spheres of activity, if you like, the private inside the home and the public on show in front of everybody, um, which I imagine is pretty parallel to what's happening in ancient Greece as well. Um, but if you have a hearth on the, the inside of the house, that is something that is tended by the woman. And all of the rituals associated with the household divinities are tended to be bound up in the family. And you can't get away from the fact that there are women in the family that are part of those ritual processes. You mentioned the bonadia. 
and that uh, men were excluded from this uh, certain festival. There's an interesting anecdote I remember where men happened to show up. I guess the another a Greek parallel to that would be the Thesmophoria and where technically men were not supposed to be at that as well. Uh, could you give more information on what would happen to men if they happened to show up at said festival? What did the women do at the festival? What did they celebrate? What were they worshiping and what happened to men? Why were men excluded and what happened if they transgressed that law? Yeah, so I mean the Bonadea is it's a pretty amazing kind of cult. And so the incident that you're referring to is the one that comes up in 63 BCE, um, where Clodius actually disguises himself as a woman and sneaks into the rites because he's interested in one knowing what's going on, but also there's somebody there that he's got a bit of a crush on, it would seem as well. So He's trying to find out some information. He's trying to see some things that he shouldn't. It's being held at the house of Caesar and it doesn't go well. Presumably Clodius is a typical Roman guy and probably his disguise is not that great. And he rocks up and people are like, pretty sure that's a dude. Pretty sure. Um, So he gets caught, he gets thrown out, and then it is a huge controversy. Um everybody gets involved. Um, He has to be punished. It's an issue. Um, So it starts to bleed back into the politics of Rome in that period because you've got a lot of factional politics going on and Clodius is trying to be disruptive, deliberately so. But what's supposed to be happening at the Bonadea Festival is that the women are supposed to be getting together and they're supposed to be performing some sacrifices themselves. Um, They're supposed to be probably having a drink together Um, maybe having a good time. There's supposed to be some dancing. And the ideas that these sorts of things are connected just to sort of like fertility and and harvest and that sort of thing, I think need to be put to one side a little bit. There is a real tendency to sort of read goddesses and women's performance within certain cults as just being typically female. And the whole process gets reduced to these things. So it's like, it's to do with women. It's women's business, whatever that is. Um, and just leads to a whole lot of stereotyping. I, I think about this a lot. And I wonder, like, what would happen if you wrote about festivals to do with uh, male gods where it's mostly men involved as if it was just men's business? Oh, you know, they're just doing a little bit of preparation for war, you know, the old men's business stuff that they get up to rather than like, you know, what could be really going on here. I think there's a lot more to be investigated, uh, really a lot more to be drawn out about like what do these rituals mean, not just for these women, but for Rome in general. Because on a vast scale, Rome has this continuous, it's almost like a set of like imaginary scales where they're interested in their relationship with all of the gods and interested in this concept that they refer to as the Pax Deorum the peace of the gods. And if this is out of balance in any way, um, this becomes a way of explaining the troubles that Rome is facing from external or internal threats. And then once it's been identified, they have to propitiate that somehow. Um, They have to take action in order to rebalance that scale with the gods. So women's ritual activity just on that level must be significant and must be important because it's about maintaining this balance. And if it's not performed correctly, 
this is not just a women's business going wrong. This is Rome's business going wrong. At the Bonadio, what type of sacrifices were being made? Yeah, yeah. I think they have to sacrifice a pig. I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. There is definitely some sort of sacrifice involved. Is it similar in a sense to the Thesmophoria? Who was the ultimate uh, recipient of said sacrifices at this festival? So, yeah, yeah. So, Bonadea is recipient of this sacrifice. And so, it's of a female pig. Um, so, I, I think this might tie in nicely with connections to the Thesmophoria, actually. So, the sacrifice is the centerpiece. And because there are only women involved, we think that the Vestals themselves conduct the sacrifice at this particular closed festival. And it's, it's an interesting one as well because it's happening in a house, so ostensibly private space, but it has public implications. So there's this sense in which it's, it's liminal as well in terms of, of how it's dealing with the relationship with the gods, um, what the sacrifice means for Rome, and what are the implications if somebody like Clodius, who shouldn't be there, um, turns up as a disruptive factor as well. So from my understanding, and it's very liminal, uh, Bonadia has a lot of aspects of Ceres, which is Demeter, as well as like Sibylle, right, in her, in her worship. Um, mm-hmm. So did the ancients realize that these two festivals were kind of very similar uh, in a sense, or was this just something that we're looking back at in hindsight? No, no, they seem to be pretty well aware of it. So they don't mind the overlap. It's almost as if like the permutations on these things are the ways of enriching it to a certain degree. Um, so you have the Magna Mater, um, Kybele, who was brought in as a foreign goddess and then becomes connected and referred to as the Bonadea. And even though the Bonadea might have been something that existed previously, there's this merging of things as long as they're deemed to be acceptable. Um, because for something like the Magna Mater Kybele, as a foreign deity, she shouldn't be allowed inside the Pomerium of Rome, this sacred boundary that outlines the whole city. And yet she is welcomed in and becomes a Roman deity through that process. And so there's these weird sort of moments where Rome's like, yeah, look, I think we really like that one. Let's bring them a little bit closer. We can see some really clear connections with some other stuff. How about some of this? You see similar things happening with particularly Fortuna. The goddess has so many sort of auxiliary names associated with her. Um, She sort of taps into like every different type of fortune you can care to define. She'll have a different version of herself for it. And the Romans seem really happy with that level of diversity rather than trying to just smush everything under one giant heading. Um, They're kind of like, look, all of these permutations are fine and acceptable and they reveal something different about ourselves and something different about the gods. So there's that sort of aspect going on as well. I know in the uh, the Thesmophoria, there was a lot of like sexual talk and verbal uh, sparring. That was part of it. Uh, There's a lot of like phallic shaped paraphernalia, whether it be cakes or branches. Didn't they whip each other with branches for fertility? 
Yeah, like, like branches. Was there any of that sort of stuff, or is that was that just the kinky Greeks? <laughs> <laughs> no, there is. Um, so, I mean, they they decorate the house um, with different types of of flora that's supposed to bring out particular elements of fertility. It would seem, or encourage it. And then you have the aspect of honey is involved as well with Bonadea. So, something very sweet, but obviously has a lot of particular qualities. Um, hard to obtain uh, in the ancient world as well. And I often like to, I I try to imagine like, you know, a a bunch of women are getting together and they're having a festival and it's like, of course it's going to be a little bit hilarious. And particularly if the society in which you're functioning in is so patriarchal as to provide so few spaces for these moments of connection between women. And I think it would get a little bit insane you know, you'd want to be ripping in to everything to do with the phallus at that point. And be like, look, now is our time. We've got one night. We're going to go hard. Uh, we've got to make this count. We're not going to see each other in this context again for another year. What does it really mean to be a woman living in a patriarchal society in these times? Um, what are the things that you talk about? What do you make fun of? I feel like in this respect, the phallus is up for grabs. Um not literally. Well, in Claudius's case. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. I don't know how he, they dragged him out of there, um, but possibly. You just never know. And, you know, it, it's almost like these sort of festivals function as a bit of, they're religious, but it's also like a sense of uh, release as well. Finally, a space where you can do something slightly different, be slightly naughty, um, and maybe please the gods at the same time. Interesting. So while this was taking place, what were the men doing? I know in Greece during the Thesmophoria, the Athenians, I mean, the women couldn't do something without the men doing it. So that's when they had their apatoria, which was the occasion that the fratries, which was the clans, they met to discuss their internal affairs and you became a citizen. You They enrolled the newborn, the young kids or that sort of stuff. They did the rites of passages for the young boys. It was a festival. So they had their own festival because the women couldn't be doing something without them. <laughs> I don't want to be left out. <laughs> I don't want to be left out. So while the women are doing something, we're going to go do something else sort of thing. They just had their own little thing. <laughs> did the Romans have like... It seems like maybe not. I'm not sure what the Roman men are up to on this particular night. Like it's it's early December. I mean, if they're hanging out with each other, it doesn't seem to be in a formal way. Um, certainly Clodius is able to easily, uh, make himself scarce and he's not missed by the men. And in terms of like the ritual calendar itself, it's like, maybe they're hanging out and having a chat, but I don't know. They don't, they don't seem to have anything particular lined up, um, for themselves. And that in itself is interesting. So maybe they're getting together and having dinner, but there's not anything like strictly ritual that I can recall that's on on the same night uh, for these guys. So, Yeah, the Thesmophoria took place, uh, I guess it would be late October, early November. It was the month of Panepsion, roughly about the same time. It was a corresponding with when the, the fields were plowed and the seeds were sown. And what is the aim of the Thesmophoria from your perspective? So it was to celebrate Demeter uh, and I guess Persephone, very similar to the Ellicinian Mysteries, the sowing of the seeds. So uh, 
It was basically to celebrate fertility rights and kind of a reenactment of what you see in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, where you reenactment of her descent into Hades, uh, so to the germination of the grains. So it goes in with the calendar year. So they have the Thesmophoria then, and then they have the Eleusinian Mysteries in the springtime, which is a little bit different. It was a three-day event, the Thesmophoria, and a lot of the stuff mimicked what you see in the hymn to so you get a lot of the the sex talk the that you see with the iambic uh, lambasting and the obscenity and the mockery. Uh, you get a lot of imitating of her mourning for the loss of her daughter because the first day there's fasting. There's no public business or sacrifices at all out in the city during that day. It's a lot of imitation of the, of the hymns. That's why a lot of scholars have suggested that the hymn which is usually thought to recount the origin of the mysteries, is actually an ideological account of the Thesmophoria, which I don't really know where I fall on that. I'm not versed enough into that. But there's also a uh, piglets have to be resurrected from the ground, that the remains of piglets that were sacrificed and put into the ground months before, then you go get the remains. It's, it's all weird things with, from the modern sense. Yeah, yeah. I always wonder what they're going to do with those pig remains, you know? Hmm. Dig them up and then do what? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, rotted as expected. <laughs> it's alive. <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, oh, yes, the underworld. They were only married women, so the Bonadilla was all women, right? No, not all women. Because it's being held in an elite household, you've got mostly just elite women involved. Rome is operating on a pretty stringent class structure around everything to do uh, with with ritual. So you can have the Bonadea ceremony officially going on in the house of a magistrate and it's all elite women. And then what might be happening elsewhere, and I'm not sure if this is the case with Bonadea, but it does happen with a lot of other deities, is that you'll have the elite version happening at a specific location, which is exclusive, and then you'll have different types of rituals um, to a similar version of the god or goddess happening in another part of town, which is open to other women, whether that be plebeian women. Um, sometimes the exclusion relates to being a patrician or being a plebeian. Sometimes it's even greater than that. You're either a citizen or a non-citizen, or sometimes they have rituals that are really specific for women who are perceived as being uh, sex workers and not having necessarily a class designation except for being lower down in that in that threshold. But the elite women that attended, they could be elite unmarried women, right? They could, yeah. Um, certainly you've got the Vestal Virgins are part of the presiding group at the Bonadea, so you've got unmarried women there for sure, but they're probably going to be from an elite background. And whether there's an age restriction, it's not clear either like do you have to have come of age as a woman in order to be applicable it we're not really sure but presumably if uh, the wife of the magistrate is the host and presumably her daughters if possible would be there as well otherwise where would they go so you talked about the vestal virgins attending uh do you want to talk about them a little bit more uh, i hear that you are an expert ha <laughs> Um, yeah, what would you like to know? All the things. <laughs> all of the things. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Uh, all right. Where to start? 
Um, so the Vessel Virgins, everybody knows about them for whatever reason, but it's easily misconstrued in various ways as to what's going on. They're part of the major college of Rome. So at the top, Rome loving its hierarchical structures as it does, it has the Pontifex Maximus at the top, and then it has what they call uh, the major colleges. And there's only about 14 people who constitute this major college. And it involves a few flamens and their wives, uh, the Rex Socorum and his wife and the Vestal Virgins. And that is pretty much it. Um, so you have this group of six women uh, who are drawn from the most elite families traditionally. Uh, the restrictions loosen over time. But initially they're supposed to come from patrician families and there's all of these sort of onerous restrictions upon how they can be selected. They must be between six and ten years of age. They must have no blemish upon their body. Both their parents must be alive um, at the point in which they enter the cult. Um, so there's all of this sort of challenge around selecting appropriate candidates to go into this college. But going into this college is insane. Like you get taken out of your family, uh, legally speaking. And one of the cool things that happens to these women is that they don't fall under anybody else's patria potestas, uh, the power of the father, which is this legal mechanism uh, for ordering all families. So they leave the power of their father, but they don't enter under anybody else's. So they effectively become their own legal entity, able to conduct business on their own terms which is incredibly unusual for women, particularly in the sort of like early Republic. And one of the things that they must do in order to maintain that is to retain their virginity for the entire length of their tenure. So this is sort of a really complicated aspect that's bound up with the idea that Vesta as a goddess is a virgin and that the priestesses must be a mirror to her. And then it's also tied in in various ways. There's this sense in which Vesta doesn't have any iconography. She doesn't have a particular cult statue. She can have other statues elsewhere, but she doesn't have a cult statue in her own temple. And so the Vestals become like this living vessel for her as well. The flame is her symbol, but they are also mirroring her as well. So the, it gets very complicated in terms of how these women come across and also what it is that they're required to do. I don't know that their restrictions are necessarily any worse than any other major priesthood on some level, uh, but the criteria to remain a virgin is obviously pretty intense if you've had to have that foisted upon you before you've even sort of become a full biological sort of adult. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's yeah, it's like you, you're like, oh, you have to do this for the rest of your life, and you don't even know what the other options are for you to choose. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but it, it was seen as a great honor, though, right? A huge honor. Yeah. Did the vessel virgins see that as when they were selected? Would young girls see that as an honor, or was it more like the father felt that it was an honor? I think like many things with societies and the way that they're structured, if your parents think that this is a really big deal and you're a six-year-old, you probably think it's a pretty big deal as well. 
like if everybody tells you that this is important and this is a huge honor, you're not quite old enough yet to, to have questions about that. And um, you're like, yeah, sure, cool. This is, you know, scary, but everybody says it's great. So I must be special, I suppose. I'm the luckiest six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, super fortunate six-year-old. What's going to happen to me next? And despite the ways in which the structure of the priesthood is designed to take these young women out of their family sphere and place them in the sphere of the city of Rome itself. So they have their own legal power. They live by themselves. Even though these things are all happening on paper, there's some pretty clear examples that the family connection is still super important. And it's not like a Vestal forgets who her family are. Um, even though she doesn't fall under their legal power anymore. We see Vestals often using the advantages that they have to promote their own family uh, when the opportunity arises. So we get some pretty cool stories about this kind of stuff. The one that I quite like is from 143 BC and Appius Claudius Pulcher uh, asked for a triumph on the back of uh, some military victories and the Senate is pretty sure that his victories don't count because the amount of losses that he's had. And they're like, you can't have a triumph for that. It was it was a Pyrrhic victory, dude. And he was like, I don't know, I think I can have a triumph. I, I think I might just have one anyway. So he organizes his own triumph and he's like not listening to the Senate. The tribune of the plebs come out and they're like, oh, no, we have to stop him. And the tribunes have the power to stop him because their bodies are not to be violated. That's part of um, the deal with their position. So they can interpose themselves. And if you touch them, that would be breaking a sacred law. Um, so the tribunes step in and they're like, we'll put a stop to this uh, triumph. And before they can really get going with that, which would have worked, the Vestal Claudia comes out. And she's like, no, I'm standing with him while he takes the triumph. So she uses the sanctity of her body, which is part of this privilege of being a Vestal, in a really political way to disrupt this triumph situation to make sure that it still goes ahead. And you're like, there's just no way she would have done that unless this is to do with family. And it's not a religious thing at all. And it's very weird um, that this would happen. But you see this increasing politicization of what are sacred advantages that these priestesses have been given. Religious offices have never been politicized. <laughs> never, exactly. I mean, you've got to have a separation between church and state. <laughs> this is a shock. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> An appropriate response. I think it's really interesting because we're at a point in um, the scholarship at this stage where the realization that it's problematic to talk about Rome in terms of its politics versus its religion, we still do it because it's an easy dichotomy for us to make. But the Romans, I, we don't think saw it that way at all. Uh, it's more of a, I don't want to say a spectrum necessarily, but it's all bound up together. The politics and the religious aspects are not separate. They're inseparable. Everything about how the relationships with the gods proceeds influences the way Rome sees itself within the Mediterranean world. And we see something odd there 
in a Vestal stepping in to make sure one of her relatives gets his triumph. But is it odd? It's mentioned by Cicero, which is why we know about it, and he's mentioning it in a positive sort of way, kind of. But, you know, Cicero is also notoriously difficult to read for these things, you know, um, how much is a compliment and how much is a backhanded compliment. And we end up noting the, these things down because other Romans note them down as unusual. But precisely what's unusual about them, I think, is still open for discussion. So obviously Plutarch says that Numa created them, but how did they come about? What was their origins? Because, you know, a lot of this sounds similar to a lot of the, the Greek, a lot of the priestesses for Hestia, but there was never a Hestal virgins. That didn't come about. So, like, what was different? <laughs> <laughs> Although you can always hear the slippage of the sound. It's not something that I've ever been able to prove, but I've certainly always assumed that there is some etymological connection, at the very least, between Hestia and Vesta. The sounds are very similar. The fact that both deities associated with fire and the hearth in particular and and the notion of the home, um, it feels like there's too many parallels. It's hard to nail it down, though, because you don't have any sort of pieces of evidence where somebody's like, you know, one is the other, or from from the ancient world where you're like, oh, that would be nice. We know, though, that uh, the Greeks have settled in southern Italy since about 800, 900. They've been there for a long time. So this Magna Graecia that's flowing up into Italy as well, there's no reason why there wouldn't be a connection. There seems a reasonable sort of flow of people to suggest that there might be connections there, um, even if we can't say, say any more than that. Do we know where Hestia Vesta origin might have lied? Is there an Etruscan connection? Yeah, not that we know of. And so like the Etruscans are to the north of Rome. But the Greeks did come into contact with them in Campania. They had a lot of trading contacts with them in Campania, especially during the 7th and 6th centuries BC, after they established Pithecusae uh, in Ischia in the Bay of Naples, and they established Cumae in the 700s. They did have some extensive trading networks in the Trinian Sea with the Etruscans. Even though they were north, they kind of still meandered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um I'm not sure because when I get to the Etruscans in my own studies, they've been sort of pushed up to the north to such a degree that you've got all of the Oscan language groups that are happening around to uh, the east and also different language groups coming up from the south as well that are sort of putting pressure around uh, Rome and the Latium region. And the Etruscans have sort of uh, veered off and sort of gotten stuck in the north. and. If that influence is is happening, it's sort of the lingering consequences. And so you might very well be correct. Um, Certainly we have the creation of the cult in Rome seems to come through this mythical story of Rhea Silvia. And she is a Vestal Virgin from Alba Longa, which is nearby Rome, but it doesn't seem to be Etruscan necessarily. But she's this like sort of proto-Roman vestal. 
I only ask that because I know every time the Greeks established a colony, uh, the flame from Hestia's public hearth from the mother city would be carried to the new settlement. So Magna Graecia, a lot of colonies, um, Hestia was seen as the center of their oikos, the polis, and essentially all the Greeks. We know very little about her, but she had a massive role because she was the center of the household, which was the backbone of the polis, which was the backbone of the Greeks. They would take the fire from the mother city to the new colony. So I was just curious if there was a connection there. If they're, oh, they're going to Magna Graecia with the fire. Um, I don't know. It probably has no connection at all, but <laughs> maybe. Oh, I, th- I think there probably is. It's just a, trying to nail down exactly what it is. I mean, that's the tricky part because when we get into the Roman source material for these things, they talk about vestal fires. And if we just assume for a moment that that's just a slippage of Hestia. Um, but what they don't talk about is this idea of there being like a locus point from which the fire is sourced. Um, they see each city as sort of defined by its own fire, and but it's not really clear where those fires come from. It's central to the household, which is central to the city, but beyond that they haven't taken it sort of any further. And then you get to Rome, and as Rome sort of starts to expand in its influence, they decide that their particular version of Vesta represents the centre of the known world. Um, this is the fire to end all fires, as it were. But we don't get a sense that they're necessarily carrying out that fire and transferring it to new places or sourcing the flame for new colonies from Rome and taking that flame with them to place elsewhere. They just kindle a new fire in the new location and go for it from there. So there's some slight differences, I think, as well. There are, but the Greeks did kind of have that too, because I mean, at, at Olympia and Delphi, which are Panhellenic sanctuaries, her altar was the collective hearth of the Greeks. It was the center of their world. I mean, Delphi was the navel of the world in their mind. <laughs> so kind of has that same iconography. How is Vesta um, held in the Roman pantheon, I guess I should say? I know that she was given really high respect in the Greek one, uh, you gave the phrase af hestias, which means starting with hestia any time a household sacrifice was offered. You evoked her first and offered her first and last libations of wines at all feasts, things like that, and, and all animal sacrifices. She was always evoked first and last, that sort of thing. Was Vesta sort of similar like that or kind of not? at all (laughs) (laughs) or maybe not Uh, yeah no she's super important so one of the ritual functions that the vestals perform on a routine basis is they create what is called mola salsa which is a ground up combination of what appears to be some seeds and some salt and some other things we're not exactly sure of the composition sounds tasty yeah, look, you know, Cajun chicken. Um, <laughs> could be great. And they take this and it's part of every sacrifice that happens. So there is no sacrifice that can happen in Rome without the sprinkling of the ritual mola salsa over that sacrifice as part of that ritual. So Vesta is embedded in every sacrifice that happens. And this means that either a Vestal or another attendant from the same circle has to be there at every sacrifice as well. So there's a visible presence of Vesta everywhere. 
And maybe this is why there has to be six of them as opposed to all of the other major colleges, which are quite small. They're usually just pairs because there's a lot of ritual sacrifice taking place. The ritual calendar is pretty full. Chances are somebody's going to have to go out and do some sprinkling of some molar salsa somewhere. <laughs> so we kind of talked a lot about, well, we kind of talked a lot. <laughs> um, Just in general, yes. <laughs> what were the origins of the Vestal Virgins? When do we think they first would have showed up on the historical record? I mean, I think the earliest is Plutarch saying Numa. Uh, in his life of Numa, is he in Dionysus Halicarnassus? Did he mention that? Yeah, so this is where we get back to the origin stories for the foundation of Rome itself. And Rhea Silvia, who is this vestal of Alba Longa, she is the one that is raped by Mars and falls pregnant with the twins Romulus and Remus. So from a Roman historiographical perspective, when they're telling the origins of themselves, the twins, Romulus and Remus, are born from a Vestal Virgin, even though she can't be of Rome. And once Romulus and Remus have done their thing and it's just Romulus and he sort of doesn't do much, it would seem, in that direction, and it's really Numa then who comes in afterwards and picks up the significance of the Vestals. Um, so he does, according to the stories that the Romans tell about themselves set up this cult as part of a response to like this historical tradition that he sees as Vestals building Rome from scratch, essentially, by burying the children. So it means that Vestals are always tied in with this idea of both virginity but also uh, fertility and the potential for um, creating things that change the landscape of the world. This idea of what happens uh, when a virgin is no longer a virgin and it turns out that, you know, she gives birth to children who found cities. It's pretty intense. But Numa's got a whole bunch of things going on because he's very much bound up in trying to get in touch with all of the indigenous deities of the region as well. So he acquires a muse in the form of Egeria, and she reveals to him a whole bunch of rituals that need to be established in order to balance this relationship with the gods, which is a bit out of kilter, given the fratricide that's at the foundation of the city. Numa sounds like one of those guys who would go out in the desert in California. <laughs> so, you know, he might, he might be doing the Burning Man Festival and coming back and being like, I found some things, guys. <laughs> you will not believe what I found. <laughs> I'm changing my perspective on everything. This is how we're going to do things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw this woman and she was amazing and the things that she told me. And I, I've been thinking in the background, like, uh, you know, connections to Greece that are happening with the Vestal Virgin cult. And I, you might have something more to say on this, but one of the things that the Vestals are in charge of is looking after some objects known as the Sacra. And... The temple of Vesta, this A-Days Vestae, it's not technically a temple, this circular building that's near the Forum, it's made up of this the hearth fire, which they have to tend, and also this storage chamber, which the Sacra are kept in. And one of these pieces of Sacra is the Palladium, which is supposed to be this really small statue of Pallas Athene that Aeneas brings 
after the Trojan War into Italy. And this is something that is considered to be especially sacred and that the Vestals must maintain and look after at any cost. The Palladium is a small statue of Pallas Athene, um, which the Romans believe that Aeneas had brought uh, into Italy. And they see this as passing on the greatness of the ancient Greeks and like the ancient East into Italy and Italy carrying on the flame of the ancient past. The Athenians believed that the Palladium was in Attica too, and they had this temple to suppose Palladium in it as well. <laughs> they can't have had it. The Vestals had it. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe it's your favorite character, right? Or are you a Livy person? Dionysus of Halicarnassus? Isn't that yours? <laughs> he is mine. Uh, look, he's growing on me. He's pretty hilarious. He talks a lot about the uh, the Prytanion in the Greek polises, and that's where the um, he gives a lot of information about the priestesses of Hestia and the Prytanion, were the Roman Prytaniums. So they were in the Greek agoras, and they're kind of like a town hall, and they functioned as her official sanctuary. It's where the executives lived and worked, and inside there was the altar. That was the ever-burning flame. So instead of having Vestal virgins that cared to it, they had executives. They were males. <laughs> That's so typical. As soon as you've got a guy, he's an executive. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're the Archon Basileus. We're talking about Athens specifically, but there was a Britannium in all Greek agoras. But in Athens specifically, the Archon Basileus was one of the three Archons so when the monarchy faded in Athens, the role kind of became oligarchies and then the roles was, were passed on. And so it was essentially, they held the religious role that the monarchy would have had. So his job was the religious role of Athens. And one of his roles was to be the executive to make sure that the fire was burning. <laughs> and it was a male thing. There was not vessels. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. It was also here in the Pretanium that all foreign ambassadors were entertained. So they, they got invited to dine in, inside the public hearth of the city. So all foreign ambassadors and um, embassies came there, and that's where they were entertained. If they were to speak before the ecclesia, they were brought here to figure out what their business was because you weren't just going to go talk in the ecclesia without them knowing what you were going to talk about <laughs> first. They didn't want to get blindsided. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> Tell us what the uh, speech will be about, young man. We're curious. Yeah, so the executive and the uh, the people who happened to be in the boule, uh, which was nearby, who happened to be in charge of the boule at that point because it rotated. So it was like a 35, 40, 50-year-old Vestal virgin, I guess, but not really a virgin because, yeah, they were a man who had all sorts of possibilities for sexual <laughs> But not really a virgin. Look, that's, a, that's a slope <laughs> we won't go down. <laughs> Yeah, look, a slippery slope indeed. So it sounds to me like that role is somewhat paralleled by the Rex Secorum and the Regina Secorum in ancient Rome. And they're part of this major college as well. And they live in a, a small little trapezoid building just sort of across the road from the Aedes Vestae. So they can sort of see the Vestals. And they're seen as this like really ancient layer of uh, sort of religious practice. 
because they seem to embody like the ritual functions of the old Roman kings, which are just no, no longer possible. The kings are gone, but what do we do about the rituals that were embedded in kingship? We still need to have them. So they pass on to this guy and this woman as a married couple and they do some things. They are definitely not looking after the fire. Um, they could go and look at it. It's very close to where they are, but it's not within their jurisdiction. So it's an interesting split of the role, if you like, to not have the flame as part of what they do. And in Greece, it seems to be very much part of what they do. I should caveat, though, that Dionysus, we have very rare evidence, and most of what he's telling us is from the early Roman imperial era. So it could be different in the archaic and classical period because, you know, he's writing during Augustus. And he's talking about the public, the women, the matrons would have been in charge of the private hearth in their oikos or their household. Although in some cases, men did tend to the hearth in the home as well. There's evidence of that. If there was issues, I don't know. It wasn't like a strict role that the women had to do it. So we talked about the origins of the Vestals. Are there any like specific rituals that the younger girls might have had as like rites of passage? other than Vestal Virgins. Yeah, so we do have one of these forms of Fortuna, Fortuna Virginalis, which kind of says what it does, the fortune of of the young virginal women. And the role is to protect the adolescent girls. And it's for their coming of age ceremony that the girls get together and they dedicate small togas to Fortuna Virginalis. And this is also the ritual where they also receive the stola, which is the visible sign of being a full-grown citizen woman of the tradition or plebeian class. Below that, you don't get to wear the stola. But if you're a respectable Roman citizen woman of full age, you get to wear this stola. And then they sort of get a transferred into the protection of Fortuna Primogenia, who is a patron of mothers and childbirth and is also an oracle of sorts. There's not much to go on, but we do have a companion sort of ritual moment where young women become ready for adulthood and there is a ceremonial process associated with that. Were there any sort of processions or festivals that were very honorable for them to attend? So I know like in Athens, the Panathenaic procession to be one of the Arabhoroi, which is uh, the carrier of things literally, but the um, sacred objects. That literally means the carrier of things. So the carrier of sacred objects, there's two of those. Um, they did that at the age of seven. They were ch- uh, chosen to serve Athena for a year. And Athens, a uh, Panathenaic procession uh, for a young virgin girl that was very prestigious. Is there anything similar to that in ancient Rome for young girls, like a rite of passage? Not so much a rite of passage necessarily, but you have the Lupercalia, you know, pretty intense, um, the 15th of February, and it does seem to be really bound up in things to do with fertility. So women will be out and about um, during the Lupercalia and the young men who have been chosen as the Lupercali uh, will sort of strike women as they run past them with these like goat leather strips um, in order to sort of 
increase or enhance the sense of fertility going around. So women are clearly out and about during these sorts of things. And we have the vessels who are involved on that day. They are offering cakes. We have other priesthoods who are also involved. So when you get to something like the Lupercalia, it's almost like there's a whole range of festive events connected with it where all of the priesthoods are sort of have their own role to play in making sure that everything goes well. So there is those sorts of things. We more tend to see moments of women in procession when they're attempting to protest something rather than necessarily celebrating something. But when they sort of get together en masse in the public space, it's usually because they're very unhappy um, about something. And otherwise they're just kind of integrated into ritual processes and not necessarily specifically parading around themselves. So there seems to be a relative difference there. What I meant to say earlier was canaphoroi, not araphoroi. Canaphoroi are the carriers of baskets. That's what it was. The araphoroi would be the girls at the age of seven, so before they would be the basket carriers, who were selected. This was very prestigious. They lived for a year on the Acropolis, basically as interns <laughs> with priestesses. Uh, there was other things that they had to do that Pausanias uh, says, but essentially they were interns, if you want to think about it in modern terms to serve as young priestesses for Athena. Were there anything similar like that on the Capitoline Hill or anything for younger girls that age, or is it just Vestal Virgins, but those were for life? Not that I'm aware of. I don't want to say that it's not possible, but I, I don't know about it. And it seems for the large extent that young children sort of kept out of these kind of ritual things, it certainly I can't recall any. It's like putting me on the witness stand. I do not recall. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure. Certainly the one with festival seems pretty unusual in terms of like having children involved. So basically they assisted in uh, the weaving for the annual peplos for Athena's statue in the Panathenaic procession. I imagine it's the same for Roman women, but maybe not as intense for uh, ancient Greek women where weaving was a really important part of what it meant to be a Greek woman. They needed to know to weave. If you didn't know how to weave, it was like a shame sort of thing. So they learned it at a young yeah. age. Oh, yeah. Look, yeah. This is, this is very intense and it does get bound up into ritual as well. This connects nicely to the Flaminica Dialis. So the woman who serves uh, Jupiter and her role is to be the quintessential Roman matron in many respects. And then those requirements have been ritualized for her. So if she doesn't perform them appropriately, not only has she failed as a woman, but she's also failed as a priest, which is <laughs> pretty intense. Failure at life too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, it is harsh. So she's required to spin and weave well. And she has to produce all of her husband's garments and her own by her own hand. So one of the ways that elite Roman women got around the requirements of weaving was that they sort of nominally learned how to do it. And then they would get their slaves to do it for them. And this was pretty standard. So it was like, yes, I, I can weave, obviously. And I'm in charge of weaving in my household which in brackets means I'm telling other people how to do it. <laughs> it's like, I can weave, quote unquote, I'm good at managing how to weave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm great at weave management. And this is, for the most part, elite women in Rome get away with that as well. That seems to be not an issue. But then you have something like 
the Flaminica Dialis, where the requirement is specified that by ritual condition she must weave by her own hand. And she's just like, oh, man, what a job. So she's come presumably from a patrician background, but even if she hasn't, by marrying the Flamen Dialis, she becomes a patrician. And so now she's in a situation where she must weave with her own hands and then she must get it precisely right as well. So there's one garment which has to be woven completely from wool and one Flaminica Dialis gets into trouble because she stitches up some of the edges with a different type of fibre and she gets into a lot of trouble for this. Everyone's like, "That's it has to be completely wool. What part of completely wool did you not understand? It's like, uh, I'll unpick it. Give me back the cloak, you know. It's like the Republican religious version of Bridezilla. <laughs> it's so intense. And this is partly why I, this is getting away from Roman religion for a moment, but partly the reason why Livia, uh, the wife of Augustus, sort of stands out in Roman estimation is because she comes out and she's like, oh, yeah, obviously I weave all of the clothes myself. That's what a proper Roman matron should be doing and basically shames all of the other matroni in that moment being like, this is how it's supposed to be. This is Roman traditional values and supporting Augustus in his moral reforms at the end of the first century. And so, yeah, weaving has this weird sort of role where it's seen as very prestigious. Obviously, you need to know how to do it. But over time, a lot of elite women sort of get out of doing it unless they absolutely have to. Um, And then once Livia gets on the scene and she's like, obviously you should be doing this, this puts a whole new sort of frenzied women getting back into weaving thing on the agenda. (laughs) So were there any women priestesses for male deities in Rome? You know how kind of like in ancient Greece you have the Pythia for Apollo? Similar to that, you have a few cases of that. Was there any instances where there were priestesses or was it strictly gender straight in Rome? (laughs) Yeah, no. I mean, so the Flaminica Dialis, she's a priest for Jupiter um, and described very clearly as such. And she doesn't appear to have a huge connection to Juno, which is what people would expect. Be like, well, if the husband is the priest for Jupiter, perhaps the Flaminica would be the priestess for Juno. She's not. She's clearly the priestess for Jupiter. And the same is true for the other Flamens as well. So there's the Flamen for Mars and the Flaminica for Mars as well. We don't know so much about her role. And there's also the Flamen for Quirinus, um, this sort of embodiment of the citizens. And there is also the Flaminica for him as well. So you do get some pretty clear cases in the major college for Rome that sits right up the top of their religious hierarchy. And then after that, it sort of gets a little bit more hazy, particularly because we know that um, there's some really popular foreign deities like Kybele who end up having numerous sort of identities so, like, Kybele as the Bonadea is definitely about women, but Kybele, who was sitting outside the city, is definitely taking castrated men as priests. There's lots of weird overlaps there, depending on how the goddess or god is perceived and what 
type of priest or priestess they take. So you talk about uh, foreign deities. I know there was quite a few of them that came to Rome. What was the Roman attitude towards women getting involved in such cultic practices, kind of like Bacchus? There was a huge thing with Bacchus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, there's a yeah, there's some big issues with Bacchus, and there's a real clampdown on the worship of Bacchus. The women fall just as foul of uh, the rules as the men in that case. All of the sort of great stories about orgies and other criminal behavior. Um, and the women seem to be definitely involved. But you do have like transitional figures as well who start out being viewed with suspicion but gain more respectability over time. So Bonadea is one of those. Another one is Isis who has to be outside the pomerium but does seem to gain more positive reputation over time. So we've got some evidence um, from Pompeii of – women who placing themselves under the guidance of Isis and are still quite prominent in their public sort of persona and position. And it doesn't seem to have been held against them. So for me, it seems like the Roman religious system is constantly fluctuating between what will be relatively acceptable, what will ensure the maintenance of that Pax Deorum. And it's, always changing and I always hesitate when I look at the evidence because the evidence is obviously very time specific and to be able to try and make really bold claims about how this system is operating is really hard given what you can see as just like the normal fluctuations of how gods are treated how priests are treated in relation to gods how priestesses are operating it feels like we're always on unstable territory. It makes it really fascinating, but it also makes it really hard to make really clear statements about, oh, this is definitely the case, or maybe this was the case in the Republic, but it's definitely not in the Imperial period. Or we have this great festival that's just for women or something, but it doesn't come up until the 4th century CE. So what does it mean that it's taken so long for that to happen? And how can I relate it in any way to my subject and knowledge area, which is way back in the late Republic? <laughs> I kind of want to talk about Dionysus a little bit somehow. So we can talk more about Bacchus. I know that Plutarch has some interesting anecdotes about some things in Greece during his time period. So it would have been during the Roman period. So I'm curious if there was any interesting stories with Bacchic worships going on at that point. Plutarch is the second century CE, AD, whatever you want to say. Time so, you know, he was the priest at Delphi and he used to every winter, according to the myth, Apollo would go up to the with the Hyperboreans and he would abandon his post and it was taken over by Dionysus. And then the, you get these wild women who are up on the Mount Parnassus celebrating an early spring festival. So late winter, early spring before Apollo came back called the Agriania comes from Agrios, which means wild or savage. So you kind of figure out where this is going. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, but I want all the details. <laughs> they would run crazy under the influence of Dionysus. And so what distinguishes this from other stories is the role played by men uh, who try and check the women's <laughs> wildness which is dumb. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Never do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so apparently Plutarch goes into it and he talks about how women are said to be descended from the minions where it relays back to a tradition that uh, 
these minions were driven mad when they refused to participate in Dionysic dances and myths. And they, so they were, they tore apart infants. They dashed them against rocks and only be chased away as murderers. And so women who were supposed to be descendants from them were punished by being chased by a sword wielding priest of Dionysus. <laughs> who was given the power to kill any woman he caught, but the power was supposed to be symbolic. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet it was. I'm going to kill you with my sword, lady. <laughs> She's like, do it now. <laughs> well, if we'll say if they even ever had the power. It was purely <laughs> symbolic by Plutarch's day. But he says that at one point, the priest before him uh, named Zolius actually killed a woman. And so that's how he became the priest because he was deprived of the priesthood. Oh. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's like somebody needed to tell that guy that it was a euphemism. Dude. <laughs> yeah, euphemism. But you have these uh, crazy women going wild during the w- late winter, early spring up in the, I mean, you've, mm-hmm. you know, the Euripides play doing crazy, pulling people apart, Sparagmos, basically having a romping good time up there. And you have this priest <laughs> running up with a sword trying to chop them down like it was a slasher movie. <laughs> Classic times. <laughs> Was there any of those in ancient Rome? Oh, <laughs> uh, look. I mean, uh, the big incident with the Bacchanalia happens in 186 BCE and Livy reports on it. And it's a real problem because Bacchus has only really turned up a relatively short while before. So the Romans had a god already which was Liber Pater, the free father, which was all about wine and fertility. And this sort of gets merged um, once they become aware of Bacchus. But the Bacchic rites are secret, and this is part of the issue. We run into strife because the secrecy of the rites means that how much should we be reading for the stories that are trying to manipulate us? So if people are meeting in secret, what are the sort of things that you can say about them to ruin their reputation and also prevent them from meeting in secret anymore? And it turns out that, you know, like some really good stories for that are like the intoxication, the ecstasy, the freedom, the wild sex. Sounds like my type of party. (laughs) These are the stories that are told about the Bacchic rites. You know, should we believe them? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we might want to be a little bit more cautious. They're the sort of parties that sound really great. Typical Thursday night. (laughs) Midweek, go hard or go home. But they're (laughs) they're also the similar sort of stories that we end up being told about the Christians when they start meeting in secret as well. Didn't they eat babies or something? Yeah, we get stories (laughs) of incest because they refer to each other as brother and sister. Stories of them eating babies. You know, so as soon as people meet in secret and it's disruptive to the status quo, then you start to have these really sort of scandalous stories emerge of amorality. And I wonder, like, how much is, like, going to a party of Bacchus just sort of sitting around and having a nice time and getting a little bit drunk? And how much of it is this wildness and, like, you know, people performing um, and trying to get out of themselves and and somehow like getting in contact with spirits and things and all of this other sort of wild stuff that ends up being associated with it. And part of me is like, they're the sorts of parties you want them to be having because they get into trouble for meeting in secret. But what are the chances that that's really what's going on here? 
now were there both male and female at these bacchanalias yeah yeah so it's slightly different from the maenadic craziness that plutarch is describing when it's females going (laughs) wild on the mountainside because you know the maenads were the crazy worshippers of dionysus okay so the difference is there were actual males involved in rome Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, these rights, so, yeah, the Bacchanalia, once it hits Rome, everybody's involved. Um, <laughs> yes, co-ed parties of intoxication uh, and ecstasy and possibly more. How do you get on that list? <laughs> <laughs> you got to know somebody, you know. It's like uh, waiting for the text message for where the secret location is. If you don't have the number, you're never going to get the text. So all of these wild behaviors that don't conform to the strict moral boundaries of what Roman citizens are expected to do means that the Bacchanalia just gets slammed and the congregation of these people is it's broken up and they're told that they're not allowed to meet up anymore. And a whole bunch of people get punished for this as well. Does it become an official state-sanctioned religion later? It gets suppressed. And we have some fragments of the Senatus Consultum de Bacchanaliabus, you know, the Senate's request regarding the Bacchanalia. And they decide to place the Bacchanalia and the worship of Bacchus under the control of the Senate and the Roman pontifices, so the major college of priests. And this means that the cult in the form that people were experiencing great things and having good parties is dismantled. So you're regulated and it's not as fun. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's like you can have good sanctioned rule field fun, guys. <laughs> and you're like, this is lame. So they want everybody who was like, I'm going to celebrate something to do with Bacchus to apply for permission to have a party. And they're allowed to meet as mixed genders. That's okay but it can't exceed five. And so you can have two men and three women, but no more than that. And <laughs> and only women are allowed to be priests. Interesting. Okay, so there were female yeah, priests yeah. of Dionysus then, or not Dionysus, well, I guess technically Dionysus, but Bacchus. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so gains a reputation for being connected with women who are sex workers and elite men so you might also start to think that there's probably a power imbalance at play um, maybe some exploitation going on here as well so it just becomes a five-way orgy (laughs) (laughs) small groups of five only i don't know what they could get up to you know goodness me it's a secret religion you know and there's only three women so who can say associated with sex workers is that what you said Yeah, in the initial, the thing that part of what leads to the suppression is the fact that young plebeian and patricians are getting mixed up with sex workers. Uh Yeah, this is seen as like partly class violation, but also partly ritual violation, because usually the Romans like to segregate classes to perform rituals in different locations and perform different rituals, even if it's the same god. So... The idea that you're having these mixed gender parties that are also mixed class parties that is also supposed to serve a religious function is something that the Romans are just not comfortable with at all. This is not how you maintain good relationships with the gods. You've got to demarcate class and demarcate 
location for celebration. Interesting. So young Marcus is spending too much time in the brothels and he is spending too much time at those bacchanalia, those three women, two guy orgies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, just settle down, buddy. <laughs> Marcus will accept many sacrifices. Does it have to be this one? <laughs> It's interesting times anyway. The Romans, they like their traditions and the Bacchanalia is really flying in the faces of a bunch of things. Certainly the Senate doesn't like it when they can't tell what people are up to. All right. So we covered quite well women's roles. Um, I mean, we didn't cover everything, but we covered significantly a lot of things that women had a hand in uh, the public sphere. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the type of role in the home? what they might have been in charge of in the home, what type of religious roles they would have had? Yeah, the home is obviously like a, a very tricky place to try and lock down evidence for. Um, it's something that's not written about much. What we can tell is that the hearth fire in the household seems to be the domain of women. And looking after that is predominantly their business because uh, you don't really want to let it go out. I mean, that's just a practicality thing. It's the fire that you use to cook as well and much easier to not have to relight a fire. So keeping watch over that to a certain degree, although not with the same level of focus that you might expect from a Vestal Virgin, but certainly that was part of their domain. The other thing that they're quite interested in is taking care of things like the lares which are the guardians of the household. So these are like really small gods, or they're considered to be very particular to location. They influence boundaries and they're considered to have their focus on the domestic sphere and family meals. So a family will often have a shrine to their particular personal lares within the household, and this would probably have been the domain of the women to look after as well. Interesting. So the Lares, I know that the it was the chief priest, so the oldest male, he made, we believe, daily offerings to three deities, in particular, purity and prosperity of the home. So it was Zeus Catesios, uh, which is Zeus's protector to the household's wealth. And he took the form of a two-handled jar that was worshipped in the storeroom. So you would go and give a little prayer to the two-handled jar, Zeus Ctesios, two-handled jar in the storeroom for prosperity. And then you would have Zeus Herkios, who is Zeus's protector of the boundary that surrounded it. So he would be in the courtyard of the home because, you know, every Greek house had an open courtyard that couldn't be seen from the outside because this is where privacy greek women could not be seen doing their daily chores blocked off <laughs> we're not going to go down that rabbit hole that's for other episodes you can listen to on my podcast <laughs> oh <laughs> tune in next time and then there was apollo Aegeus, who is apollo as a protector of the entrance to the house and as you guessed it he was worshipped in the form of a statuette or a small pillar that was in the front of the house or like beside the street door. So oh. you said something as you entered or walked out and they, these were the three charms of the house. And the, it was up to the family's head priest who gave Hail Marys to those. <laughs> it seems similar to the Lares, I believe, except the, the Lares were in the hearth, right? Like they lived in the hearth. No. So they have their own shrine inside the house and you would bring like the sort of statuettes over for when you were having a meal. They had their own little spot, so you could go and worship them there, or you could have them involved in the rituals of the household. 
And then because they've got this connection with location and they're seen as like really minor but location-specific deities, they start to gather a community aspect as well. So you have the lares of the family and the house and then you have the lares of the community who seem to be like slightly bigger, uh, (laughs) covering a more specific but slightly larger area and they have people assigned to them um, to look after. You have small shrines at crossroads that are part of the local area. You end up having male delegates looking after these little local public shrines, whereas the ritual focus in the household is more on the women and sharing that with the men in terms of looking after the lares of the household themselves. So they're essentially like giant chess pieces that you move around. Yeah, but they're stuck in a particular part of the board. Um, They've got like one square that's really important to them. And you're like, you know what? This is the square I'm looking after. I'm the guardian of here. And you're like, I want to move you. And they're like, don't move me. I'll lose all my power. (laughs) It's a perfect analogy. (laughs) You're like, I'd love to help you out with your chess battle, but... I'm only good when I'm here. <laughs> it's like having nothing but horses or not horses, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You've only got knights and it's like, I can move here for you. And you're like, are you sure? I want to move over there. I'm just like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for joining me. This was a great conversation. If anyone, and you should, wants to check out your podcast, where could they find you at and on, on social media and your website? Oh, you can find us on Twitter. That's probably where I do my best work, I would say, at P underscore historians. <laughs> you can also find us on our website, The Partial Historians. Very easy to find. Just type it into the Google. Uh, we're also on iTunes where you can listen to all of our episodes, carry around our magical voices in your pocket. Think of the power of Roman history right at your fingertips. I think we have an Instagram, but we don't do a lot with it. Uh, it's just photos of our faces. So maybe don't worry about Instagram. You know, if, if you're into that kind of thing, we're there as well. Oh, and we're also on Facebook. Oh, my goodness. There are so many places. Um, but again, the partial historians on Facebook is very easy to find. Mm-hmm.